We want to welcome you. If you're visiting this morning, you have uh, visited uh, First Baptist Church, and we are in the process of finishing. Uh, This will be the last message out of this little tiny letter of Jude, if you're not familiar where it is. Uh, Just turn all the way to the back of your Bible, find the book of Revelation, turn back a page, and you'll be on the one-page letter from Jude. It seems maybe hard to believe, uh, but we have been here now um, since the beginning of August, and uh, I don't know about you, but it has been rich and uh, convicting in my own life and hard as I ponder the questions that Jude is asking of the church, and I pray that has uh, been the same for you. We are committed as a church to working through the scriptures line by line and verse by verse, book by book. Um, I will not uh, unveil quite yet as to where we're headed next. I think we'll pause and, and deal with a couple things that are going on just in our world, uh, maybe for a week or two, and then hop in to the next book. I'll keep you in derision there. Well, hopefully if you found you where there, we're in verse 24 and 25, and we have come now to this uh, benediction, this doxology uh, of which is so full of deep, deep theology and love of Christ. Verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now, and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for this little letter um, so packed with uh, warnings and truths for your church. Lord, I pray today as we consider all that we will see in this text, Lord, that you would help me as, as a proclaimer, Lord, of your word to speak that which you have said. And I pray, Lord, for those who sit here this morning that we would not leave the same way that we came in, Lord, that uh, we would be a people who are not just hearers of the word, but doers. Lord, help us today as we consider just the depth and the promise of your rest of which you give us, that you are able to save us and you are able to keep us, Lord. We thank you that you are willing. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. The writer of the letter uh, to the Romans was a man named Paul. You and I, and if you are a student of the Bible, are very much well uh, aware of Paul, his presence, and his writing. He hails from a place called Tarsus. Paul's life and near death are recorded in the book of the Acts of the Apostles and the remainder of the epistles, and we see him signing off essentially in 2 Timothy, uh, knowing that his time has come and that his life is being poured out. A tertiary look at this apostle's life often leaves us who read his writings thinking that this apostle did not struggle with temptation or fall into sin. We often remember remember the miracles and milestones of the ministry that took place in and around him. 
Miracles like seeing the resurrected Lord on the road to Damascus. Miracles like observing the young man who uh, sat through a longer sermon than I preach, if you can believe that, right? I mean, I've been watching some that have been going hour. I've got a new goal here, right? But the young man all night long, he's listening to the Apostle Paul. He falls out of the window. He dies, and, and the Lord resurrects him through Paul. We, we think of Paul in uh, in miracles like that, or perhaps the providential earthquake that freed him from the Philippian jail and spurred on the salvation of the jailer and his family. We think of his many writings like Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, and all the pastoral epistles. And in as much as the Apostle Paul was a hero of the Christian faith and maybe one like we will never see or ever has been, Again, I am thankful to know that he also struggled with sin during his life. One of the most endearing and comforting texts in the New Testament comes in the middle of the most theologically rich letter of the New Testament concerning the salvation of man, Paul's letter to the Romans. Beloved, there has never been a a genuine born-again Christian who didn't struggle with sin, walk through this life, look and peer into the word of God and wonder, am I saved? What about the sin that remains in my life? And what a struggle. I'm so grateful for chapter 7 and chapter 8 of of Romans, what is so deep in its theological understanding of man and how hopeless and sinful we are that Paul himself doesn't separate uh, himself out from the sinful nature that is in man, but begins to deal with that in chapters 7 and 8. We get to peek into the daily struggles of an apostle and a human, just like you and I. Paul, speaking of his natural inclination to sin, said this in in Romans chapter 7, verse 15, For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do but I am doing the very thing that I hate. He continues on on this list and he, uh, during this time in this section of chapter 7 and says this in verse 18 and 19, I hope that you can identify with this, for I know, he says, that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want to do, I do not do, but I practice the very evils that I do not want to do. Can anybody identify with that? Are you glad that when you read your Bible that these men didn't uh, just sit in here and write and we don't see these perfect lives uh, play out in front of us, but yet we see every man of God struggling with sin, struggling with difficulties in their life and getting back up and moving forward. So grateful for these texts. Paul goes on to describe what every Christian since the day of Pentecost has struggled with, the war that goes on inside. That war is between the sin-cursed flesh and the Spirit of God who took up a dwelling inside of this tent that is getting old. Recognizing his propensity to sin, Paul laments over it, saying this in in chapter 7, verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? And he answers his question. 
Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The very next chapter and verse, Paul says this, Therefore, in light of all that, in light of the struggles that I have, and the fallings, and the getting ups, and the want-tos, and I can't, in the reality that God in Christ Jesus set things straight in our lives. He says, therefore, in chapter 8, verse 1, there is now. When? (laughs) Now. Right now. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And later in that very chapter, chapter 8, the apostle will go on to solidify in the mind of every Christian who has ever wondered if they could do or do something to lose their salvation. An unmistakable answer, a resounding no, in light of the apostle's failings, in light of his acknowledgement that he was a wretched man, Paul says this in Romans 8, 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? We could answer, no one. In light of my sin, in light of my struggles, in light of the fact I can't do the things I know I'm supposed to do, Paul never questioned whether or not at the end of his life he would be with the Lord. He says, no one will bring a charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies, he answers. He, answers, he asks another question, who is the one who condemns? Answers, Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised? Who was at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? He is able, beloved. Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword separate us from the love of Christ? No. (laughs) It cannot. It will not. God saves. God keeps. God elects. God chooses. We fall. God answers. Paul says in verse 37, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we we sin. We fall. We struggle. Paul sinned. Paul falled. Paul struggled. But his hope was not in the flesh. His hope, how could it be in the flesh, right? That fell and struggled and didn't do the things he wanted to do. His hope was securely placed in the love of Christ who had died for him. The Apostle Paul, I'm so thankful, was tempted and fell into sin. And in as much as he understood his wretched condition, he was not shaken about his eternal security. He was at rest in his Savior who had done the work of righteousness for him. He said, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Pause for a second and ask yourself, what are you wrestling with? What are you struggling with? 
Certainly God doesn't want you to stay there. He doesn't want you to continue on in sin. The Spirit of God will not allow you to continue on in sin without feeling some kind of attachment to that sin. He wants the best for you. He wants to move you forward. It will not be okay to stay there. God will stir up in you by his Spirit a desire for repentance, a desire for change, a a need to see the love of God in and through your life. Friends, we have been working our way now through this epistle of Jude since the beginning of August, as I said, and we know that the situation of which Jude is writing is found in Jude, verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing, that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. We know that the complication is found in verse 4, which says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand, marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The Spirit-inspired Jude spends the majority of this little letter describing these ungodly persons. Why would he do that? It's so that we can understand and we can judge and we begin to be careful about those who we see inside the body of Christ. He warns the apostates, those who have left the faith, by telling them in verses 5 through 7 that God is just and he is faithful to punish those who refuse to inhabit their proper domains. In verses 8 through 13, the Lord reveals or unveils the apostates by giving us over 20 descriptive or adjectival um, words and and clauses to um, describe them in a way that they are apostates. And again, remember, they're not outside the church, they are inside. In verses 14 through 16, we saw that these ungodly apostates are going to be condemned at the great and terrible day of the Lord. And the concluding statement about the apostates is made in verse 19. Take a look at it there. These are the ones who cause divisions. They're worldly-minded, and they are devoid of the Spirit. So we've seen the situation in verse 3. We've seen the complication in verse 4. And, and we have begun now down this road to the resolution. What is God calling the church to? What are we to be doing in light of the fact that there is apostate teaching inside the church? There are apostates, unbelievers, inside the church. The resolution starts in verse 17 where the letter turns its attention from these apostates to but you beloved that is the spirit-filled regenerated born-again believers we have titled the last paragraph of this epistle as surviving apostate times there are four truths of counter-terrorism if you will which have, uh, we have recognized in accomplishing the task of surviving these apostate times. Take a look there. We took a look at them a few weeks ago, verses 17 and 19. We're commanded to remember. We're commanded to remember that the apostles, Jesus Christ himself, said that there was a time soon to come that apostates would enter the church. Now, I feel like it's necessary for me to just pause a second and remind you that there's a difference between heresy and apostasy. Heresy will always lead to apostasy. 
It's bad teaching. It's something that needs to be corrected, uh, and it should be corrected. It should be done lovingly and then a little more strongly, and then if somebody wouldn't repent of that, right, we would put them out of the church from Titus chapter 3. But heresy always, over time, <laughs> it's a slow fade, turns into apostasy. And two, uh, 2,000 years later, we sit in much of God's church or what people might call God's church today might meet and the majority are listening to apostate teaching. It's a slow fade. There's a temptation to get discouraged with that. If you're paying attention and to all that is going on within the church, it could be discouraging if we don't remember that the apostles said that this was, hap- was going to happen. The second is found, uh, the second way in which we can counter, uh, counteract these terrorists inside of the church is found in verses 20 and 21, and it is to remain in the love of God. Remain, keep, keep yourselves in the love of God. We talked about the importance of the body being the body, that people operate in that which God has gifted them to do, and that we walk together. There is a yourselfness. There is a corporate nature to the body of Christ that is required that we would be strong. A hand is not a foot, a heart is not an eye. It takes all of us. Not, there is no lone rangers in the body of Christ. So we are to remain in the love of God, remember there, by building ourselves up. And we talked about knowing the word of God and all the things that we are trying to do here as a church to help you to know the word of God better, praying in the Holy Spirit that is subjected to coming to your Lord, your master, saying, Lord, my life is yours. What should I do? And, and then the third one, waiting anxiously. The third counter-terrorist attack that we need to have is that we need to reach out to those who have been deceived by the apostates, doubting, committed, and convinced people within the church who have been deceived by this false teaching. We're commanded, reach out to them, love them. That assumes that you would know the doctrines of the faith, that you could even reach out to them. Today, we're going to look at the final counter-terrorist act to be done by the born-again church. It is to rest. Rest or peace is the direct result of the doctrine of eternal security or otherwise known as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Like the Apostle Paul, sin remains in our mortal bodies, ever reminding us and beating us down with doubt, discouragement, depression, and a general feeling of wretchedness. And if we are going to survive, survive these confusing and difficult apostate times in the church, the believer is to rest and remember that our, our eternal security was purchased with God's own blood. And like Paul, we can say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's take a look. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to him who is able. I want us to pause there for just a moment and think about that statement. He is able. He is able. The God who spoke the universe into existence, every atom that is held together, every life, every color you see, everything you experience. Scientists have 
gone on to look into our galaxy and what we once thought were millions and billions of stars or billions of galaxies. God breathed it into existence. God is able to keep you. God is able to save you. It is nothing for him. Many of you know Christy uh, Winters is uh, a major help to me as my administrative assistant and in our crossings as we go uh, in and out of our days. She um, is, she's walking her life of faith and I'm walking my life of faith. Sometimes uh, I will see struggles and things come up in the winner's life just like they do in mine and yours. And one of the things I love so much about Christy Winters is she will always say, God's got this. God's got this. He is able. (laughs) When God showed himself to Moses in Exodus there in chapter 3, Moses is confused, he's scared, he is not quite sure what he's supposed to do. He knows he needs to go back. He doesn't want to go back. And he says something like this to the Lord, right? Well, who in the world should I tell Pharaoh, the king of the the greatest military might in the world. Who should I tell him that, <laughs> that he should just give up his two and a half million slaves? Who should I tell him sent me? God answers him, I am. I am that I am. I am the God who spoke the universe into existence. I am able. The New Testament word there is dunamis, where we can transliterate our word dynamite. God is able. He is powerful. And to do what? To keep you. Take a look there. To keep you. The verb we see here, to keep, is the Greek word phulaso. The verb phulaso is most often translated in the New Testament as to guard. So that is kind of the sense. It's a different word that you found in verse 21 there where we are to keep ourselves. It is phulaso. He is able to keep. He is able to guard you. He is able to do this work. The Apostle Paul used it in his letter in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, and it said this, and, and he uses this word phulaso, guard, through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The treasure which has been entrusted to you, guard it. God is able, he is powerful, he is willing, he can, he is the great I am to guard you. So beloved Jude is revealing that God is able, he is powerful to keep you from what? Take a look there, it says from stumbling. Now what does this mean, that God is able to keep guard, protect you from stumbling? Does it mean that a real Christian will not stumble into sin in this present life? If it does mean that, you and I are in a lot of trouble. I cannot get out of bed in the morning without having some sinful thought, whether I am aware of it or not. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, that he is able to deliver us from our stumblings. As a matter of fact, Jude's reference cannot refer to a believer being kept from sinning. For the genuine born-again Christian um, has an awareness of the sin in our lives and only becomes more apparent the longer we are in the faith. It's kind of ironic, is it not? 
The more we give our lives to holiness, the more we become aware of the sin that remains. And the more we are tempted to think, oh, wretched man that I am. First John said in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, that the believer would know that he's a believer because of his awareness of his sin. We often, right, get tempted into this idea that because sin remains, we're not a believer. But beloved, let me help you out here for just a second, and I hope to encourage you that sinners who just want to be sinners aren't worried about their sin. Think about that for a second. Sinners who just want to stay a sinner are not worried about their sin. When the Spirit of God, however, lives inside of you, <laughs> you're not going to be okay with that sin. You may love it, you may run to it, you may want it in your life because of difficulties, circumstances, whatever may be going on, but at the end of the day, after doing it, submitting to it, uh, deciding to get into to whatever it may be, you feel like throwing up. You feel like, what in the world have I done? I can't believe I got angry and said that again. I can't believe I got tired and looked at that again. I, I can't believe. What is wrong with me? Well, that's not something that's wrong with you, beloved. That's what's right with you. 1 John 1, verse 8 through 10, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not even in us. Think about that. We don't celebrate the fact that sin is in our lives. We don't celebrate that it destroys us, that it breaks our hearts. But if you're saying out there, you're sitting here, you're listening online, whatever it may be, you're saying, I, I don't know, I don't have any sin. <laughs> I don't have a problem with sin. You're not a believer. However, if you're aware of your sin and you want to get up out of it and you want to see God deliver you from it, the Spirit of God is living inside of you because that is not natural to a human being. What is natural to a human being is to be sinful and want to do it. Beloved Jude's statement that God is able to keep you from stumbling is not a statement referring to God keeping the genuine Christian from sinning. That is the doctrine of progressive sanctification which God is actively accomplishing in every believer's life. Rather, the statement uh, is this, that uh, God is powerful. He is able to guard you and I from committing what we know in the context of this book is apostasy or leaving the faith. Are you tracking with me? He is able to keep you from stumbling, falling away. He saved you, and he's going to keep you. He is not going to lose you. Although you may like Paul, say, oh, wretched man that I am, and you will become more and more and more aware of your sin, he will not allow you to apostatize. He will keep you from stumbling. Jesus said, speaking of being able to keep his saints, in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40, listen here, speaking of all the people God would give Jesus. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Sound like any doubt there? And the one who comes to me, 
I will certainly not cast out. Why? For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he, that is God the Father, has given me, Jesus Christ, listen, I, say it with me, lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Friends, this statement from the creator of the universe, Jesus, flies in the face of a prevalent doctrine that is taught in the church today, which uh, proposes that a genuine born-again person can be walking along, born again, loving and knowing Christ, and then walk away from their faith and go to hell. There's nothing in the scripture that teaches that. You can sin and you can walk away from the reward that you and I will receive on the day in the Bema Seat judgment, that day, we can lose that, certainly. That's why Christ would ask us to be obedient, beloved, right? Be obedient because eternal, uh, eternity is a long time. And to have eternal rewards and eternal things get taken away from you because of your action on this earth, uh, of this earth has eternal consequences. And I love you, the Lord would say, right? Don't do that. Don't sin. Don't get into that. That's going to cost you eternal rewards. So certainly you would lose eternal rewards, but you will not, will not lose your salvation. You cannot, or Christ's work for you on the cross was not enough. One preacher said it well when he said, if you take the doctrine of eternal security away, all joy confidence, assurance, rest, comfort, and hope are significantly disabled. Add to that, he goes on to say, the loss of rest in your soul, the weight of doubt that comes up, the fear and anxiety that would exist because, I don't know, did I sin too much? Beloved, the Bible everywhere teaches that God alone saves us. Our work Jesus goes on to say there in John chapter 6, if we are to work at all, the work is that we would, what, do you know? Believe. Our work is just believe it. Believe that my life was enough. Believe that Jesus Christ's life, death on the cross, it was enough to cover that sin. He is able to keep you. He is able to save you. In light of our sinful condition and the amount of false teaching that exists in the church today, it is tempting to get discouraged and think that we have fallen away from the faith that was once for all passed down to the saints. But the Holy Spirit inspired Jude, uh, and, uh, letting our hearts, our doubting hearts, rest by telling us that God has this. God's got it. He is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand. Take a look at that make you stand. Beloved, not only is God able to keep us from committing apostasy or leaving our faith in the here and now, giving us rest in the here and now, God is going to, listen here, make you stand. Wow. 
The verb histemi is literally translated to cause to stand. It is what you're seeing there in your Bibles. If you don't have an NASB, you're seeing the word present. Quite literally, in, in all the lexicons, you look it up, it is to cause you to stand. So I love what the NASB did there. They just left it alone. God is able to make you stand. Take a look. Where is God going to cause us to stand in the presence of his glory? After a night of unsuccessful fishing, Simon Peter caught a glimpse of Jesus' glory. When Jesus filled their nets, if you'll remember, to the point of breaking, you can feel the disparity in that text as you're reading as Simon Peter is doing what we often do. As we work and we work and we work and we work and we don't pray and we don't rely on God and we work and we work and we work and we go all night and we get tired and we get exhausted and, and we pull up the boat and we are absolutely hopeless and we don't know where to go or what to do and, and here's Jesus standing there with a smile on his face I can only imagine saying, hey, cast your net over on the other side. You know, the boats are like six foot wide, Right? The nets spread out as they go down, right? And you know, in Peter's mind, he's thinking, oh, man, <laughs> I just fished right there. What, what's six feet going to do here? The Lord, if you'd like me to, I'll go ahead and do that. Oh, hum, Lord, you say to do this, so I'll just cast out my net six feet from where I just cast it all night, Lord. Fills the nets. They're breaking open. And at this moment in Peter's life, he looks at the Lord and he recognizes how sinful he is to have fished all night, to have worked so hard, and, and to have doubted that God was able <laughs> to fill the nets. It says this, Luke chapter 5, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. There was something about the glory of the Lord and his unmeasurable authority that caused a reaction in Peter, and he fell down. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel attempting to describe God's glory, if you're familiar with that, is such a fun chapter, chapter 1, where, where Ezekiel is translated into this heavenly throne room and he is doing everything he can in the power of his might. He, he uses the word like like 30 times. I saw something like this and, I, and it looked like this and I couldn't figure it out but it kind of had eyes all over and it was going over here like a chariot and it was doing this like this and He's grasping for every human word possible to try to describe what he is seeing, the glory of God. He says this in verse 28, as the appearance of the rainbow and the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the, here it is, likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. Ezekiel fell down when he saw the glory of the Lord. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke describing a moment when Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain 
And Jesus was transfigured before them. You guys remember the story, right? And after seeing Elijah and Moses speaking with Jesus, Peter, like he always does, begins to speak because that's his natural thing to do is just can't listen and be quiet. So he, he, uh, he has, uh, put, puts his foot in his mouth and, and this is what happens in Matthew chapter 17, verses 5 through 7. While he was still speaking, that's Peter, a brilliant cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. I think this is for Peter. Listen to him. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, look at what they did. Peter has already fallen on his face once. Ezekiel falls on his face. They fell face down to the ground and were what? Terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. He was able to make them stand. Sixty years after the death of Jesus, the Apostle John was in the Spirit and had a revelation of Jesus Christ and said this in Revelation 1. Verse 17, when I saw him, that is Jesus, I fell at his feet like a what? Dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid for I am the first and the last. Jesus was able to make him stand in his glory. Friends, the Apostle Paul proclaimed to the church at Philippi and Chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are heaven and on earth and under the earth, that at every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, sinful man cannot stand in the glory of God. Now, I have stopped short. You could go on and on and on about the examples in your Bible none the least of which would be Isaiah, who gets a revelation of the Lord in chapter 6, right? And he says something much like Paul, oh, wretched man that I am, right? Who am I? Everyone in this room will experience. This was sobering for me as I thought through this text. We are all going to experience Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Every knee... In the glory of God is going to bow. Can, can you imagine this scene? Every human being who has ever lived is going to hit the ground as dead. Every tongue is going to confess, you are able. You are God. Whether we will recognize our sin at the revelation of the glory of God or not, we will be like Peter in this moment. It will drive us to our knees, and the only way for us to survive that moment is that he causes us to stand. Beloved, rest. God's got this. Your eternal security is secure. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Now look there, it says, blameless with great joy. And what justifies those who are able to made to who are able uh, to stand or made able to stand versus those who are not able to? They will be found right there in your text to blame this. Amomas, or without blemish, is the word there. Jude being a Jewish man that he was, 
understood that sinful man could not stand on his own in the presence of the Lord. The language to be blameless or without blemish was established early in the law and as early as Genesis when the Lord sacrificed animals to make Adam and Eve Eve, uh, clothing to cover the the shame of their sins so they might be in the presence of the Lord. When Israel had been delivered out of Egypt and God became their king, he required that an animal was sacrificed and that it was blameless. You're able to stand, and why? Because you must be blameless. Said, in order to be blameless, you must be blameless in order to be in his presence. Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 says, Then the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his burnt offering is is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male. Listen here, here it is. Without what? Without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. These animals were to be blameless. They were to be without defect and were uh, of great value in an agrarian culture, were they not? I mean, if you're a breeder and you want the best of your stock and you want it to... Uh, you want it to go on and propagate and have more of the best of your stock. You want to take the best, the blameless one, right? The one without spot, the one without blemish. And you want, to, uh, you want to keep that to yourselves, but God is saying, nope, you bring that to me. You sacrifice it. That's the cost of sin. You must be blameless if you're going to be made to stand. Beloved, if you're in here this morning and you uh, are a sinner like me, how are you going to stand in, the, in God's presence? How will you become blameless? The writer of Hebrews uh, says this about Amomas. He uses the same word, blameless or without blemish. Chapter 9, verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without, what's it say, blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God, the writer of Hebrews says. Friends, we ask, what justifies those who are made to stand versus those who will not? What is it that will make them to be found blameless so that they could stand in the presence of the Lord? When Jesus appeared at the Jordan after his 40 days of fasting and temptation, John the Baptist, who had already seen, seen him and baptized him, and he was saying to the nation, right, at this point in time, that the kingdom of heaven, that is the king, he is among you. <laughs> he didn't know. He knew that he had baptized the Messiah. He just wasn't quite sure where he'd went. He'd gone off for 40 days of fasting. He probably recovered at some point in time, and all of a sudden we see it in John, and John alone, he comes out of that 40-day temptation, and he's recovering. He probably looks... Pretty horrible, I would imagine. And he looks out and he sees Jesus approaching. He's already baptized him and he knows that's the Messiah. And and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How will you stand blameless? How is he going to make you to stand if you believed in Jesus Christ? 
I don't know everybody in here this morning. I certainly don't know hearts. I don't know how long you've been coming to church. I don't know how many times you've heard the gospel. But let me tell you this, you cannot earn your way to heaven. You have never had a good day. You have never not sinned. David would say that I was conceived in sin in my mother's womb, understanding that Adam's sin passed to all men. The only way you will be made to stand is if you are in Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 6, your work is to believe. Friends, if you're in here this morning, if you have not believed, you will not be able to stand in the presence of a glorious God. You cannot, you will not, it will not happen. It is so terrifying to recognize how God is justly going to judge sinners. But he says, I'll make you to stand. Believe. Your work is to believe. Put your faith in Christ. Cry out to him now. Cry out to him as soon as possible. The Bible says today is the day of salvation for you. Cry out. God is merciful and just like a judge. He is merciful and he is just. He is able to forgive you. And he's done it by paying for you with his own blood in Jesus Christ. Will you stand on that day? There's nothing in our sinful natures that can either keep us saved or make us stand in his glorious presence, blameless. God causes both to happen. He is able, beloved. The fourth counterterrorism act is to rest in the eternal security that God purchased with his own blood. And when we do, there will be great joy. Think of that. There's something in Peter and his recognition of who Christ was that showed him his sinful condition. And yet, Peter, he raises up and there is great joy. Think of the moment. We recognize how much we should be justly judged and yet Christ will reach out and say, this one's mine. He will make you stand. Put your faith in Christ. Jude said now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy. Oh, friends. Thank God that there is no merit involved in our salvation. Thank him that there is no merit. You were earning it. You would be depressed if you had any recognition of your sin and you thought you could earn your salvation. What a depressing thing. There's no merit. And because of that, we will have great joy. Think about it. Like Peter, we will recognize our guilt in the brilliance of his glory. It will cause us to fall as dead men and God will cause us to stand and we will have great joy. Beloved, rest. Christ's life was enough to save you. Christ's life is enough to keep you from apostatizing. If we are going to survive confusing and difficult times, try and trying times in the church, the believer is to rest and remember that our eternal security was purchased with God's own blood. And like Paul, we can say thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jude goes on to finish this tremendous doxology and says to the only God, our Savior, 
Through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory. Oh, to the only God, our Savior, be glory. Give him all the majesty. Look there. He has all the dominion. (laughs) He has all the authority. He can make it happen. And how long has he been doing it? Before all time, before time even existed. All glory, all majesty, all dominion, and all authority belong to him who created and spoke us into existence. And how about now? He still has all glory and all majesty and all dominion in the now. And for how long? Forever. (laughs) Think of it. We serve an awesome God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tremendous letter. Pray, Lord, that there would not be a soul in here that would leave today without securing their relationship with you, understanding there is nothing in our ability that can satisfy your wrath on sin, only the work you did on the cross through your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you please Grant repentance to those who have not repented. O Lord, that we might one day rejoice with great joy in the recognition that we do not deserve any of it, Lord, but you loved us. O God, would you help those in here today? And Lord, for those who are struggling with sin and struggles in life, Lord, we identify and I pray, God, that you would help them to repent. I pray, Lord, that you would lift their heads up out of the muck and the mire of of the struggles of this life, Lord, and remind them that regardless of the amount of times that they fall, God, that they uh, fall on you, our rock, Christ Jesus. There is no falling too far when they have put their faith in you. Lord, would you lift them up? Would you help us? Would you help us as a body to come around those who are weak and struggling? Would you protect us from those apostates in the church, Lord, would you give us the grace to reach this, this city, this nation, Lord, and the world. We'll give you all the glory, Lord, because it all belongs to you. We pray in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.